It's great to be worshiping with you all this morning. My name is Paul, for those I haven't met. I'm one of the pastors here at The Journey and part of our preaching team. Now, another member of our preaching team, Len, he seems to enjoy beginning his sermons with some old pictures of himself. And I thought, you know, that'd be fun to do sometime. So I want to show you a picture to start off today and tell you about my friend Adam. That's us in our younger days. I, I met Adam when I was a freshman in college, and our paths crossed in the shared passionate pursuit of parties. We were going after it pretty hard. And for Adam's part, he was uh, brought up in a pretty strong Christian home, but ran away from it when he got to college. Ran pretty hard, actually, until he hit a sort of rock-bottom moment in his life. And when he did, he turned and found that Jesus was actually right there waiting for him, eager to welcome him with open arms and full of grace and love and to give him another shot. And and that really changed Adam in a profound way. He'd heard about God's love and grace and forgiveness growing up, but now it became very real, very real lived experience that turned his life around. And as a result, he also began to really submit his life to Jesus' leadership. He had heard that Jesus was Lord growing up, but never really lived that way. Until now, he really gave his life to him. And as he did, Adam began to tell a lot of other people about Jesus. And one of those people was me. The guy he'd come alongside, I was drifting along as someone identified as spiritual but not religious, so I didn't really know what that meant. I, I didn't really think there was a knowable God out there to be found and was just sort of lost. And it was Adam who first invited me into spaces and communities where I could get to know Jesus, get to know a real God personally. And he took risks in conversation with me as well to point me to Jesus. When he wasn't sure how I would respond, he went and went ahead and did that. And I'm so grateful, because as time went on, I came to know Jesus as Savior and Lord as well, and received him as Savior, as someone who would give new life to a, uh, an unworthy person like me. And, and I submitted my life to Jesus as, as Lord. And that changed everything, really, from that point forward for me. And now, a lot of things have gone on since then. Adam and I, we live in totally different parts of the country. We hardly ever see each other, and we often don't, we don't really talk very much either, but when we do, still, it's so profoundly encouraging to speak to Adam. There's a way that when we talk, uh, we're just, it brings us back like it was just yesterday to that point when Jesus reached in and grabbed hold of our lives, and we were captivated by the Savior and Lord. And we bring that back for each other. It's really encouraging for Adam because he hears what I'm up to and how I've grown and God is still at work in my life. And I think he feels so happy because he remembers back, oh yeah, I remember I had a choice to tell him about Jesus or not. And boy, I'm glad that I did. And it kind of urges him to keep doing that with people in his own life now. And for me, there's a way that talking with Adam kind of reminds me who I am. It reminds me at the most profound level who I am, that my life really doesn't belong to me. It belongs to Jesus, that there was a moment where he reached in and grabbed hold of it. I love that line we sang, you are the hand that reaches out to save. And, and Jesus did that for me. And things haven't really been the same since. And, and now you all know me as, a, who know me? You know me as a Jesus guy. I'm up here, I preach and stuff. That's what I do. But Adam remembers 18-year-old Paul, who was decidedly not a Jesus guy, and he's a living reminder to me that this, this was not always the case, and that there was a point when my life was turned around by the gospel, and uh, I rem remember who I am. 
Now, we're going to be looking for the next six weeks at the New Testament book of Philippians. Philippians is a letter written from the Apostle Paul to a church at Philippi. And Paul was someone who grew up with a very religious background, but was kind of missing the point completely until he had a dramatic encounter with the grace and love of Jesus and came to know him as Savior and Lord. And then he began to bring this gospel, the gospel that Jesus is Savior and Lord, to people all around, and that included people in Philippi. And then he wrote to them this letter, Philippians, and and in a way, it's just so full of encouragement because this relationship between Paul and the Philippians went on for, for a long time, and when Paul would hear from them, he would feel so encouraged by what God was doing in their life and so grateful for them. And when they would hear from him, there's a way that the Philippians would remember who they were. He would remind them who they really were and whose they were that ultimately they were people of the gospel. That's what we're calling this, this series, because that's fundamentally, as a church, who we are, people of the gospel, people who know Jesus as Savior and who follow Jesus as Lord. And Paul reminds these Philippian people who they really are. And I want to give a fair amount of background, actually, to the book of Philippians before we dive in, because it is scripture, it is God's word to us, but it didn't just drop out of the sky one day. It actually has a a context, a writer and recipients and and circumstances that were going on that that shaped this letter. So I want to help us understand those a little bit before we dive in. So like I said, Paul was the one who introduced Jesus to the Philippians, the Philippian people. Uh, We have a map up here, I think. Yeah. And this happened, oh yeah, this happens in Acts chapter 16 by the way, for your reference. We're not going to look there today, but you should read it sometime this week. Acts 16 describes the story of Paul going to Philippi and introducing them to Jesus. Philippi's up there. There's a, there's a red arrow that shows Paul's journey in Acts 16 to go to, to Philippi. It's a really uh, profound journey that he took because up until that point, Paul had spent his whole life on the right side of the map in Asia Minor part of the map. That's where he was from, that's where he lived, and that's where he had, had been sharing the gospel. And he had crossed cultures within Asia Minor and shared Jesus with people who were different from him. But this was a big move. This little sail across the the sea to Philippi was Paul's first time setting foot in Europe, a place he'd never been before. And it's the first recorded instance, anyway, of the gospel going to European soil. And for Paul, that was a big deal. He'd never been there before. It was a risk. It was unknown territory. It was uncharted waters for him, a, a cultural context totally different from from what he knew, but he went, and it actually wasn't his idea. He had no plans to go to a place like that, but he saw a vision in Acts chapter 16 where God said, come to Macedonia, where Philippi is, and so he went. So in Acts 16, we see him go to Philippi, and the first person he meets is a woman named Lydia, a really amazing woman who, who comes to believe in Jesus, and she and her whole household are baptized, and, and uh, They didn't have church buildings like this back then. It became kind of a network of house churches, actually. And and Lydia was one of those people. Her house was was the place of the church in Philippi to start. And then more people came to know Jesus. But as they did, people started to get kind of upset with Paul. And he encountered some fierce opposition in the city uh, to the point where he was publicly beaten. Uh, There was a mob that formed. And Paul was thrown in jail for preaching this news about Jesus. While in jail, Paul responded by singing worship songs, kind of like what we just did here. It's an interesting response to being thrown in jail, but he did, and as he did, an earthquake happened, the prisoners were set free, the guy in charge of the jail freaked out because, uh-oh, 
there's like a prison break, but instead of that, Paul went to this jailer and shared the gospel with him, and that jailer and his whole family came to faith as well, and that was the origins of this church at Philippi, and after that, Paul was actually asked to leave town by the powers that be and not come back, and so, so he did, but a church was born, and many, many years later, it was still going on. Paul went on to lots of other places and was rarely in contact with the Philippians, but they stayed in touch, and now at the time of this letter, many years have gone by, at least 10, 15 years or so, and Paul is in jail again for, for preaching the gospel. Now, many people think he was in prison in Rome. Uh, there's a case to be made. It could have been somewhere else. It's kind of hard to narrow down because when it came to preaching the gospel, Paul was a repeat offender and kind of was in jail several times, but for our purposes, it doesn't totally matter. Just to know that a lot of time's gone by since he started the church at Philippi, and he's in jail again, and he's suffering actually quite a bit and, and there's kind of some public shame around it, and he's, he's, he's in pain, and the Philippians hear about this. They hear that Paul's been imprisoned again, and they send him a gift. This kind of actually prompts the letter that he receives a gift from this church. They hear he's in trouble, and they, it's some kind of financial support probably to help meet his basic needs, to sustain him along the way, and also to say, Paul, we love you, and we're, we're with you in this. We care about you. Even at his lowest moment, uh, this church comes around him, and supports him, and loves him, and you can tell that he's so grateful for this. There's, there's a ton of affection in the letter of Philippians as he uh, just expresses so much joy for these people who are partners of his. You could say that Philippians is the most profound thank you note ever written, as he really writes back in response to this gift a heartfelt gratitude and thanks, but he goes so far beyond that, and he ends up writing some of the most profound words that are in all of the Bible as well, as he takes this opportunity to remind the Philippian church who they are. Even after all these years and everything that's happened and whatever they've been through, he reminds them who they really are and whose they really are. They are people of the gospel. And it's important at this time because the Philippian church is really suffering as well. So it's not just Paul who's suffering and Paul who's in chains, but the Philippian church is having a hard time when Paul writes this letter. It's not that the gospel became more fashionable in Philippi over time. So Paul, Paul brought it there, and he was beaten and imprisoned and asked to leave town. Well, it's not like things really changed after that. It didn't become popular to follow Jesus in Philippi. In fact, it probably became harder over time. They were still a minority community on the fringes, marginalized in different ways, and, and pressure was coming from all angles. So at at the point of Philippians, Nero had become the emperor of Rome, and Nero had made his hatred of Christianity and Christians pretty well known, and was the first emperor to persecute Christians. Persecution had happened all throughout the beginning of the church, but now it's coming from the highest level, and so it, it's a tough time for the Philippian church. Elsewhere, Paul refers to them in 2 Corinthians 8, and he uses two phrases to describe the church at Macedonia or Philippi. Uh, one, that they're in the most severe trial, and he describes their extreme poverty. So this is tough. We don't know what this most severe trial was that they went through, but, but life was hard. They were under some pressure. They were facing extreme poverty. Maybe that was part of the marginalization they faced as Christians. And things were tough. And, and under, that, under that pressure, there were signs that, that things were starting to crack a little bit in this church. 
Philippians addresses some, some conflict and some disunity that was starting to brew in this church. Their united front in the gospel was starting to, to fracture a little bit. There were some conflicts. There were some camps forming. There was tension um, and kind of a lack of love towards one another. And Paul addresses that as well and, again, reminds them who they are, that they collectively they belong to Jesus and are a people of the gospel. So that is sort of the background. And... And he writes to, to draw them back to who they are under these circumstances, to not forget, but to keep pressing forward into this new life they have in Jesus. If there's kind of one sentence in the, in the book of Philippians that really captures what Paul is, is saying to them, one sentence you could call maybe a thesis statement, is in chapter 1, verse 27, where Paul says, Whatever happens... Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. I'm going to dig into the, the Greek that Paul actually wrote this in back then a little bit here. So the verb, conduct yourselves, is a funky verb he uses. It's a polituomai. And he never uses this anywhere else, actually, in the New Testament. He, he's constantly telling people to live a certain way or act or conduct themselves a certain way, but he, he uses a different verb, except here. Polituomai, it, it flows out of a, a root word where we get the word like politics or political. It has the connotation of being a citizen or belonging to a commonwealth or a state and having an allegiance to a certain uh, order or, or leader. And this is a, a significant thing. So the Philippians were proud Roman citizens. The place was, was filled with people who were retired from service in the Roman army. Them and their families settled there. They were proud of their Roman citizenship and all the, the privileges and honor that came with that. But Paul reminds the, these people later in Philippians that actually your citizenship belongs in heaven. You now are citizens of the kingdom of God. And he's calling them to that here. You could translate this in and whatever happens, conduct yourselves as citizens. Live as citizens of the kingdom of God. Don't forget who you really are now. Your, your earthly address may be Philippi, but you belong to Jesus and to his kingdom. And you're to live that way whatever happens, whatever circumstances. Some of your Bibles might say only conduct yourselves as in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's kind of a literal translation but basically means, yeah, whatever happens, only live this way. Wherever you are, whatever circumstances, whoever you're with, whatever changes, only live like citizens of the kingdom. Only conduct yourselves this way. So whatever happens, no exceptions. So there's no like part-time allegiance to Jesus. There's no selective, I'm going to follow Jesus here but not there, or when things are good but not bad, or when things are bad but not good. It's like only whatever happens, Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Because that's who you are. This gospel has reached in and transformed your life, and you belong to God now. So whatever happens, this is how we're to live. And we're going to see Paul wrestle with that in real time as he writes. As he, under his circumstances, really hard circumstances in jail, models what it means to live this way, what it means to, to, to live as a citizen who, who belongs to Jesus and whose allegiance is to Jesus. And he's going to urge this Philippian church to do the same thing. To, you know, I know things are tough right now, but don't forget who you are. Stick with it. Keep going. It's a very encouraging letter. And man, we all need some encouragement like that. 
We all have circumstances that make it difficult to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, to really live like Jesus is our Savior, to really live like Jesus is our Lord. Maybe when things are good, we'd be tempted to forget about him. Or when things are bad, we could be tempted to, to abandon or, or give, up, give up hope. Or maybe there are situations in which we might excuse ourselves or think, well, I can't be expected to live this way when I'm being treated like this. But no, like in everything, we're to be encouraged. Like the gospel has taken hold of our lives and we belong to Jesus, whatever happens. So I think this will be a timely word for us as well in our day and age. So let's dive in, then, shall we, to this life being people of the gospel. If you're a Christian, that is who you are, you're a person of the gospel, and if you're exploring faith, that's the invitation to a life of citizenship in God's kingdom where your allegiance belongs to him. But let's open up to Philippians 1 now. It's on page 830, I think, in the Pew Bibles. And we'll read verses 1 to 11. And for today, we'll just kind of see the introduction, Paul's initial words to this community as he writes to them. He's also with a partner, ministry partner named Timothy, who we'll meet in a couple of weeks, but uh, Paul's the primary writer here. It says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart, And whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. It's such an affectionate letter to these people who are dear partners to him and who are together in in tough circumstances. There's a lot we could draw out here. I want to just highlight four things as we walk through this passage that Paul says to these people as he reminds them who they are. So first, Paul's very clear right from the beginning that they are Christ's people now. Just in the introduction, Paul describes himself and Timothy as servants of Christ Jesus. That is to say, our lives belong to Jesus. They are not our own anymore. Whoever we were before, they belong to Jesus now. We are his servants. And then he, to the people he's writing to, it's to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi. In Christ Jesus is an identity marker. It's a, it's a it's an identity. It's, not, it's very profound. So you, whoever you were before, your earthly address may be Philippi, but you are in Christ now. He is your Savior and he is your Lord. You're in him. That's both an incredibly gracious thing that, that Christ has welcomed us and embraced us into his family, that he has included us, and we have a place. We're in with him. We're not far away. He has brought us in and brought us near. We're in Christ 
It's an incredibly gracious and beautiful, inclusive thing. But it also comes with some demands. So you are actually, now that you're in Christ, your lives belong to him too. You are his servants. You, your allegiance belongs to Jesus over and above anything else. So whatever other identity markers we might have, whatever things may, we might be tempted to put our identity in, things we're proud of, our heritage, accomplishments, or whatever things people might put on us as labels, things to be shamed of, or things that uh, have hurt us or are broken, none of those things are who we are anymore if we're in Christ. Primarily, we are in Christ. That is our identity. If you're not in Christ, then your identity is in something else, something else that won't last. But if you're a Christian, whatever other places you might be tempted to find your identity or receive it from others, they, they all come second to being in Christ. That's who you are. And then he says, uh, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he says, the Lord, we're calling him the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's a phrase that can go over people's heads now. It's common. Uh, but this was a huge thing to say in this time and place. People say it now like it's no big thing. It could be in a post-game interview after you win a game. And you're like, oh, first I want to just thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And, you know, no one really cares. Maybe there's an awkward moment with the reporter who changes the subject. But it doesn't cost anybody anything in our, day, in our culture to say Lord Jesus Christ. But, oh, in this culture, it costs you everything. It's actually the reason Paul's in jail and the reason the Philippian Christians are suffering as they are, is because they're calling Jesus Lord in the age of Nero. And they're suffering for it. And so Lord Jesus Christ was not something you just say casually. You would only say it if you were all in. And so these people are all in. Jesus is their Lord. That's who they are. They are Christ's people now. And not only are they Christ's people now, but they are Christ's people always. Paul refers in this passage to the past, the present, and the future really. He talks about the first day until now and on to the day of Christ Jesus. He gets to the past, the present, and the future, and all of it is about Christ. So the defining moment in these people's lives now is when Jesus and the gospel came into their lives, and they were transformed from that day forward. That was the first day, or the, the beginning, the God beginning a good work in them. That's their primary Thing from their past that defines who they are. We all have a past filled with many things, some of which we're proud of, some of which we're ashamed of. Uh, but the thing, if you are in Christ, that the defining moment of your past is when his hand reached in to save you. Some of you remember distinctly when that was, like I do. There was a moment. Some of you don't. Maybe you were, it, it was gradual. Maybe you were, you were brought up to know Jesus, but either way, that is his hand reaching in to save you. It's a miraculous thing and an act of his grace that you know him at all. And if you know Jesus, then the, the point he came into your life is the, the defining moment of your past and nothing else. Nothing else that you might be proud of or ashamed of. So it's the thing that, that makes you who you are. And into the future, Paul points to the future. Like This is not just a, a thing that happens once, but something that God begins in us that he's going to carry on to completion to the day of Christ Jesus. I, I, it's just a beautiful verse that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So 
That's the defining moment of our future as well, when Jesus comes again to fully save us and to bring all things under his rule and all things under his authority. That's the future that we are holding on for, the future that our hope is in. That is where all this is headed, into a life where all things are under Jesus' rule and Jesus' control. We're not there yet. He'll bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That means none of us right now are finished. God's work in none of our lives is done. There's none of us who just kind of have it. We're done. We're finished, and others need to catch up. Like, all of us are in process with God. We are all on a journey, if you will. Actually, a very appropriate name for a church, because it's a people who have been kind of rescued by Jesus and are being brought somewhere. We are on a journey of being transformed by him. Every one of us, there's no people who get it and people who don't. Uh, we are all being transformed by him. But the, de- the defining thing in our past, the defining thing in our future is all about the gospel. And so that defines who we are now and how we are to live now. Third thing I want to highlight is just Paul's affection in this. It's, a, it's kind of some hard truth he's actually getting at here in this opener. Like, hey, you belong only to Jesus. But, but man, this is also so full of affection. Like, he loves these people. That's why he's writing to them. That's why he's telling them this stuff. That's why he's encouraging them and urging them on. He just loves them so much. I thank my God every time I remember you. I pray with joy when I pray for you. And then this verse 7, it's right for me to feel this way about you since I have you in my heart God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul's just full of love and affection for these people, and he's not afraid to say so. And the most repeated phrase in what we've read today is, all of you. All of you. He goes out of his way to say that. I mean, every you in this letter is a plural you. He's writing to a community, but he goes out of his way in the beginning to say, I'm talking to all of you. All y'all, this is for all of you, my affection. Who do I love? All of you. Who do I care about? All of you. Who, are, who shares in God's grace with me? All of you. And who am I speaking to when I'm going to offer some gentle encouragement to, to grow? All of you. There's not some who get it, some who don't. And, and he's going out of his way to say all of you. Because again, there's a, this is a church that, where there's some friction And there's some tension building and some division that's happening. And Paul's not playing into any of that stuff. He's talking to all of them, and he's loving all of them in this time. Now, if you're in a conflict of some kind, the best person you can go to is someone who loves all of you who are involved in it. All of you. Because their heart is going to be to see reconciliation happen. When we're in conflict, it's so tempting to go to the person who, who likes you and you can get on your side and kind of stockpile and turn against the other person. Well, that, that's not reconciliation. If you really want to resolve a conflict, go to someone who loves both of you. Because their heart is going to be to see you come together, to see you love each other well, and to be reconciled. And that's, what, that's the role Paul is playing here. He's probably heard about some, some fighting and some divisions in the church, and he's saying, look, look, I am in it with all of you. I am for all of you, and I want the best for all of you in this. He's filled with affection for everyone here in the church. That can be a hard thing to do in a church with many people or even any amount of people, really, to have a profound affection for all of them, for every one of them. But that's the call here, and it's a a wonderful model for us and and a, 
a thing to hold up, to have affection for everyone here. It's not an easy thing to do in a church like ours. We have had a vision to be a very diverse church in, in many ways. That's a beautiful vision. That's great. And we have tremendous diversity of life experiences, of ethnicities and culture, of socioeconomic backgrounds, of age. We have profound generational differences within our church. We have different people who've been Christians all a really long time and people who are just, just you know, exploring right now. Uh, wildly different views on a whole lot of different things, but I'm telling you that God's affection is for everyone in this church. There are going to be some people in a church like this who it's very natural for you to have affection for, and others who it's not, but we're talking about supernatural affection here, gospel affection that extends to all y'all, every one of you. There's affection for all of us, and again, we all need to grow. Paul's not singling anyone out here for the things he's about to to exhort and encourage them to do. He's talking to everyone. We're all on a journey of being dearly loved by God and, and changed by God as well. And, and he kind of concludes this section now that he's established, okay, this is who you are. You've got to know who you are. And, and I'm for you and I love you. And, and this is where he lands with a prayer for them and a beautiful prayer. And he prays a couple of things for, the, for this church, for, for greater love and for greater discernment that they would grow and abound in love more and more, and that they would grow in wisdom and and understanding to discern what is best. He wants both of these things for this church, that under the pressure that their love wouldn't crack, and their love wouldn't grow cold, and they wouldn't find excuses to stop loving certain people in their community and outside of their community, even as it's tough, even as they're facing opposition. He's praying, oh, would the love of Jesus be more and more abundant in this church, not less. And he's praying that they be discerning people. Like things are changing, things are hard, things are getting difficult. It could be tempting for them to get confused. They may wonder, gosh, we've been following Jesus for a while now, and, and it just seems like life is getting harder, not better. What is going on? Has God, is, has God made a mistake? Have we made a mistake? Paul, the one who brought us this message, he's in jail again. This keeps happening. What, what does that mean? We're proud Roman citizens, and now the Roman emperor hates Christianity and hates everything that we stand for and makes a mockery of it. Where are we in this? What are we to do? It's tough. And so Paul is praying that they have discernment in this time to not forget who they really are, to not forget who they belong to, and to be able to discern what is best in some challenging circumstances. It's a beautiful prayer for the church. And so if you pray for this church at all, I'd encourage you to pray Philippians 1, 9 through 11 for us, just that we'd be a more loving church, that God's love would abound more and more, both among us and to the the world and the culture around us. We'd be a church marked by Jesus' love, and that we'd be a church that could discern what's best as different needs present themselves, as we expand and as things continue to grow and change, that we'd be a discerning church as well, and not ever lose sight of who we are and who we belong to. I pray this for the church in our time and place in this country, honestly. As I look at my Facebook feed and I look in my own heart and I I see a church that I think sometimes is struggling to, to abound in love, struggling to present a united front in the gospel to the world and struggling to understand our circumstances and to discern what is best. 
That's nothing new, though, because this church struggled with it, too. It's always hard to abound in love. It's always hard to discern what is best, and that's why we need God, and that's why I love that Paul ends with a prayer here, not a command. It doesn't start with, this is my command that you abound in love and discern what is best, or this is my advice, or this is my directive, as if you can just do this yourself and puts the burden on them. No, this is my prayer that God would make you a more, a more loving people, that he would provide you the power to keep loving each other and keep loving the people around you, even under hard circumstances, that God would give you insight and God would give you wisdom and knowledge that you just can't have, you just can't figure out on your own. We need God. Then he'll go on to give some practical interpretation of what's going on in their lives. He'll help them out, and he'll give some some tips, you could say, for how to discern well, and he'll give some practical applications for how to, to really love people in a real way. Uh, so it's not just, we, we have to participate in this process, but ultimately, this is God's work in us. Like, who can make us pure and blameless for the day of Christ? We can't do that. God can. Who will fill us with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus? Well, that's not, we can't do that. God can. It starts with a prayer. Would God help us to grow in love? Would God give us wisdom and insight to discern what is best? I think that's the, the genius of the 12 steps, really, is it, it there is work to do down the road, but if you start, you got to start with an acknowledgement that I cannot do this myself. And Paul's not saying to the Philippians, like, you got to do this. You got to figure this out. You got to figure out how to love well and discern well in these troubling times. No, it starts with an acknowledgement. It starts with people on Paul on his knees, calling people onto their knees to say, we, we can't do this, we need God. But this God is faithful to them, and he who began a good work in them will see it through. He will com- complete what he has started in this church. They might be a little lost right now. They might wonder if God's, if God's abandoned them, or if God has quit, or if God has, has been overpowered because their lives are really in a tough spot. But but Paul points them to this God who is going to finish what he started. He is not going to fail. He is not going to abandon them. He is not going to leave them. And nothing about what's happening to them changes fundamentally who they are, that they are people that God has reached into their lives to save, to redefine their lives, and people that he is going to bring home one day to live in his kingdom. And there are people who are called to live as citizens of that kingdom right now. And so whatever happens, and whatever is happening in your life, in our collective lives, that's who we are if we're in Christ. We're people who belong to him, who've been rescued by him, and who he is taking somewhere, and who he is always encouraging to grow in love and in discernment, and he will see us through to the end. We're going to close our our time this morning with some more worship, but we're also going to celebrate communion together, and I think that is a profound way to remember who we are as God's people. The worship team can come on up and the servers can come on up. We, on the last night of Jesus' time on earth before he went to the cross, he, he took bread and wine, he gave it to his disciples, he said, take and eat this, this is my body, it was broken for you. Take and drink this, this cup is my blood that was shed for you, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. This is who we are. We are defined by this moment, by this Jesus who poured out his life, who sacrificed his life for us. 
when we're called to abound more and more in love, we're not called to just muster it up ourselves or to live out of the goodness of our own hearts. Look, I don't know about you, but the goodness of my heart is not good enough to abound in love all the time. But we're called to live out this love that Jesus displayed and poured out for us by sacrificing his body and blood for the forgiveness of our sins, by holding nothing back. We're, we're just displaying the most profound love that's ever been shown in this world. It has a source, and, and, and this is it. So if you're a believer in Jesus, uh, take this opportunity to, to really remember who you are and what he has done to make you who you are. This is the defining moment of your life when you came to trust in Jesus and his, his work on your behalf and submit to him as Lord. Now, if you have not done that, if you have not really acknowledged Jesus as your Savior, as the one who, who, who takes away all the other labels, who has atoned for all of your mistakes and wrongdoings, if you have not acknowledged him as your Savior or as your Lord, as the one to whom your allegiance belongs from now on, you can do that right now. Because otherwise you have some other defining moment from your past who defines who you are. But I don't want that to define who you are. Jesus wants to define who you are. And you can, if this is your first time, come on forward and take this bread and this, and this symbol as a way of saying, actually, yes, I receive your forgiveness in my life and I want to follow you as my Lord from now on. You can come freely and everyone can come. The servers will be in the front. There's a, a bread that's free of any kind of allergens. So everybody can come. In the cup we have juice so that anybody can partake of it. And we invite you to come and to declare your allegiance to the King, to Jesus, to remember who you are so that we can live lives worthy of the gospel, whatever would happen. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this time we have now to, uh, in a tangible way, remember that the love you talk about is not vague or aimless, but is rooted in, in real time when you came to, to be among us and you sacrificed your very life so that we could have new life. Would you teach us and remind us, those of us who, who've heard your Savior, who've heard your Lord who say that, would you help us to to grow deeper in that? Would you help us to abound in love? Help us to discern what's best. Use this series, Lord, to form us as a people of the gospel in our time and in our city. Because you didn't pour out your life for us for nothing, Lord. You made us into a people who you care so deeply about, you have such affection for, and you want so much for as well. And you want to bring glory to yourself through this people. So would you shape us Make us your people in every aspect of life, whatever happens. And would you get the glory and the praise for that in Jesus' name.